got to get all my notes kind of lined out there. I really envy preachers that can get up and preach without notes. I've never been able to do that. I, I need two or three pages of them gently. I always number them too. I actually one time got up to preach and I had three pages of notes. And I wasn't paying attention. I preached page one. It was going pretty good. And then I started preaching and it didn't seem to work too good. And I looked down and I was on page three. But it worked all right. I just went ahead. Most of them was about half asleep anyway, so they never knew the difference. I've had the privilege of preaching here over the years a number of times in different situations. I can remember one time when uh, the church was meeting over on uh, near Broad Street. Was that on 6th Avenue or something over that direction? 2nd Avenue, okay. And we was holding a meeting. I remember the man... Brother Gilbert Copeland was holding us a meeting. I lived here at the time. I did live in Lake Charles for two or three years. Uh, got mad, moved to De Quincey, but that's all right. And I remember uh, the river came up suddenly. Had a bad day of rain. We had a little meeting going on. And I remember coming up that night parking out in the street, a lot of water all over the street, a lot of water all over the sidewalk. We literally, there was very few there as you can imagine, literally took off our shoes and our socks, rolled our britches legs up and waded up the sidewalk to the church building. But in spite of that, this month beats everything I've seen. Two hurricanes and a pandemic, and we've made it through it in spite of everything. I want to commend every one of you for being so faithful through all of these trying times. And for the elders for trying to encourage us and make things as easy as they possibly could under these very adverse conditions. It's been a pleasure being with you this month. I'm not a bit surprised at what I see because I've had the pleasure of preaching and fill-in preaching meetings or whatever for 60-some-odd congregations of this part of South uh, West Louisiana, Southeast Texas, and everywhere I've gone, I've found good, faithful Christian people trying to live right and follow the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. There's a few people left still wanting to do right. We look around sometimes and we get a little discouraged, but there's still a few Christian people left and thank God for that. We live in a crazy, mixed-up world. Sometimes we don't really know what's going on. It's awful easy to get hard, cynical, and discouraged. But don't. 
we will not be pessimistic. The Lord didn't intend us for us to be pessimistic. We're going to make it, and let's remember that. Keep a smile on our face. The Apostle Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that that I've committed unto him against that day. And let all the congregation say amen. amen. The sermon today is entitled, The Rest of the Story. How many of y'all remember Paul Harvey? See, a pretty good many of you. Remember, he was a newscaster, broadcaster. And he had a segment where he told a, an old story that most of us knew. And then he, after he told the story, he said, And now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Y'all remember that? Shake your head. That's good. And then he was, told us an interesting end to our old story that sometimes we didn't know. And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to start with a very old story. In fact, it's so old, it's from the Bible, that no doubt everybody here could tell it. As easy as I'm going to tell it right now, it's the story of Jonah and the whale and Nineveh. And everybody remembers that story. We read about it in the Bible in the book of Jonah. I love the book of Jonah. You know why? It's got four chapters and 48 verses. Sometimes I'd go, when somebody said, uh, you going to read your Bible? But, oh, yes. And I wanted to get in a hurry and read it. I turned over to Jonah and I read that right quick. 48 verses. Four chapters. And it was a good little story too. I read the whole book of Jonah like I'd done something big. But... In fact, there's a bunch of them little books right there together. Some of them don't have but three chapters. One of them don't have but 31 verses in it, one book. So if you, you don't ever get in a bind and say you read a whole, won't read a whole book, but read one of them back there and look back. That's kind of cheating a little bit. We got to watch that. I don't, forget all that. Anyway, this little book of Jonah is about the story of Nineveh. Nineveh was a, a large city. But it had become a, a very, very wicked. And uh, God decided he was going to destroy Nineveh. God's judgment sometime is long, but you can bank on it being sure. You can get away with stuff for a while, but you're not going to get away with it always. God eventually is going to call you to judgment. He looked down there and saw Nineveh. And uh, he told uh, Jonah, I want you to go. Jonah was one of his prophets. He said, I want you to go over there and prophesy against Nineveh and let them know what's going to happen to them. Nineveh was the capital city of the great Assyrian Empire. They were pagans. They were not Jews. 
Gentile people. They worshipped idols, but they had gotten to the point that it, they were so terribly wicked that God made up his mind that he was literally going to wipe them off of the face of the earth. And he said, Jonah, I want you to go over there and do it and preach for me. Jonah said, I don't want to do that. Number one, I hate them. I'm happy to see you're going to destroy them. That's my enemy. Don't like nothing about them. I don't want to go. And he ran off in the opposite direction, caught a ship going towards uh, Tarshish, probably with Spain. And uh, God uh, put a stop to that right quick. Storm came up. They threw Jonah overboard. Whale swallowed him, and after two or three days in the belly of the whale, Jonah decided, I believe I'm going to go to Nineveh. You can't escape God, of course. So he went to Nineveh, this great city. It was the capital of Assyria. Back in those days, part of that country was known as Mesopotamia. Actually, it's in the, was located, the ruins of Nineveh is located in the country of Iraq that we know today. It was located just about in the center of Iraq at the junction of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. A great fertile valley there that had uh, many biblical uh, events happen there. Uh, that's a very, the city itself was very old. You read about it as far back as Genesis chapter 10. You read about it. Here we are way hundreds of years later, uh, Jonah. But uh, Iraq itself is a country that's very interesting. It had Many, many biblical things happened there. In fact, we call Iraq sometimes the cradle of civilization. We believe, we don't know where the Garden of Eden was located exactly, but we believe it may have been located there near the junction of the Tigris-Euphrates River in that great beautiful valley. Uh, Noah's Ark, we know that it, when it finally came to rest, it came to rest on Mount Ariat, which is in the northern part uh, of Iraq. The Tower of Babel was built there. Uh, Abraham, when he left the Ur of the Chaldees, he first settled in that area for a period of time. Isaac's wife, uh, when he was looking for one, had, they went back there to find him a wife, Rebekah. Jacob found Rachel there. The ten captive tribes were carried away in Assyrian captivity there. Nebuchadnezzar built the great city of Babylon in Iraq. Daniel was in the lion's den in Iraq. Belshazzar lived there. And it's possible, we think, perhaps, that the wise men who brought gifts to Christ's birth was from Iraq. They were from the east, and it's possible they were from Iraq. We don't know all of these things. But he, God told Jonah, uh, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, capital city of Assyria, and preach against them. And finally, God, after a little persuasion, he decided him to go. So 
he went to Nineveh. Now, I'm going to turn over and read a little bit from the book of Jonah about this happening. Listen. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. I'm in chapter 3, verse 1, said, Rise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding city of three days journey. Uh, they say that the original wall that was built around the city of uh, Nineveh, back in those days they built cities with walls around them, was so wide, it was about a hundred feet tall, and so wide that three chariots could drive abreast right down the wall together. Very big wall. It encompassed the great inner wall, encompassed something 21,000 acres, which is about 32, three square miles. So it's a big city. Uh, had lots of people in it. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and they ruled a great part of the civilized world in that day and age. So he began to preach, verse 4, entered into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, this was his sermon, listen to it, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. That's all. A very boring, simple sermon, very plain, but it didn't offer them any hope whatsoever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Eight words. That's the length of his sermon over and over again. And I bet he's doing it with a smile on his face because he hated these folks. He didn't want them to be saved or anything about it. And so when the people of Nineveh heard this, they believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the enemy. And he goes on down in verse uh, 7. Let The king said, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything uh, feed or drink water and they was all covered with sackcloth and ashes and praying mightily unto God and everyone would turn from his evil ways and from the violence and so on and so forth that they had been doing them. So they turned and repented and began to plead with God to help them and save us. And you know what? God heard these idolatrous people, evil people, and was happy about it and said, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. Of course, that made old uh, Jonah mad. He went out and sat out under a tree and pouted. He's wanting them destroyed. But God saved Nineveh. And that's the end of the book of Jonah. And that's the end of the story. Oh well, all's well 
that ends well. But that's not the end of the story. Now, as Paul Harvey says, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. There's another little book in the Old Testament called Nahum. It too just has three chapters and 47 verses in it. And guess what? It's about the city of Nineveh. I'm going to turn over to the book of Nahum. It's just close to the book of Jonah. There's one book in between them. This little book of Nahum starts this way. A powerful and jealous God, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but will not at all acquit the wicked. And then drop down to chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of wheels and of prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And there's none end to their corpses. They, they stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlots, the mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame." And I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and I'll make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste, and who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for her? And the Lord had Nineveh destroyed. Had Nineveh destroyed to the extent that her ruins was not discovered for 2,500 years. The enemy came in, wiped them out, left not one stone upon another. And that great city where it stood was occupied by the field mice and the jackals and the stones and the dust until 1845 when it was rediscovered and looked 
This was where Nineveh once was. It was in 612 B.C. that he destroyed it. And the ruins were not even discovered as Nineveh until 1845. God got tired of fooling with them and wrecked his vengeance on them. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read this. God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the long-suffering of God is not without end. And eventually, He will recompense and straighten things out. Sometimes God gives up. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. This is Peter again. First Peter chapter 3 verse 20. The long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. You know God came down and looked at the world and it was wicked. And he told Noah I'm going to destroy the world. He could have done it in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. But he waited. He said you build an ark. And Noah started building that ark. And he had built a little and he'd preach a little. And that went on for year after year after year after year. A hundred years or more while he was building the ark and preaching. Get ready. A flood's coming. You better get in this ark. God waited. He's patient but finally, he said, Noah, get in the ark and carry all you can with you. He is able to get his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That's eight souls in all the world got on the ark. And then the Bible says, listen to this, don't forget this. And God shut the door. And when God shuts the door, the door is shut. And all the people died. Just exactly like Nineveh. The patience of God finally wore out. He waited over a hundred years while Noah was building that ark. Three times in the first chapter of Romans, listen to what it said. And God gave them up. And God gave up Nineveh. You know, I like the first part of the story better than I did the last half of the story. That's what I really like to talk about. First time they went, he repented, and he spared them. 
Except we got to remember, God preserved both parts of the story for us. Took two books to do it, but he did. Because he wanted us to know that while I'm patient and loving and kind and I reach out to people, and you know he's reached out to you through his precious word, you have heard him. You have heard his call. You have heard his admonition to get right. He's patient and long-suffering. But eventually, he will shut the door. I think the greatest truth that we need to refresh in our minds so often, the one I think we forget more than any other is this. Salvation is not a once and done thing. It's a journey. It's a race. And it's not a hundred yard dash race. It's a marathon. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer told us we must run with patience the race that's set before us. And it's not over until God places the crown of thorns on our head. I've got a grandson that lives up in uh, Shreveport. I thought he never was going to get married, but finally I, he called me here the other day. It wasn't a week or so ago, and he said, Paul, Paul, guess what? I'm going to get married. Thank the good Lord. He'd been going with a nice-looking woman. She was a good-looking woman. Uh, chaps me, she's about six inch taller than I am. Of course, that ain't saying much for her, but anyway, she's a good look, long, lanky, long legs, good looking woman. I'm happy that he's getting married. She's not a Christian, but she's going to church with him, and I believe in time uh, she'll be converted and become a Christian. They're going to get married in the spring. D is her name. I really like her. She's friendly and outgoing, just a nice woman. But you know what her hobby is? Running. Now, she ain't no casual runner. <laughs> her ambition is to run in the Boston Marathon. Now, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that a 26-mile run, something like that? I believe that's right up there. Well, that's a pretty good lot of, lot of running. But let me tell you what. Now listen to me. I want you to understand me. Every morning, now you didn't hear that. That didn't sink in. I'm going to say it again. Every morning, now see that's rain, sleet, snow. You understand? Every morning, that woman gets up before she goes to work and runs 10 miles every day. 10 miles. I can walk maybe a quarter of a mile. 10 miles every day. She told me she missed one day, I think, when her mother's funeral why? 
because she wants to run the Boston Marathon. To do that, I think you've got to go to these preliminary places like Houston and run, and if you get in the top three or something like that, they might invite you to come to the Boston Marathon and run it. You just can't go up there and join them, see. But why? That's what her aim is, and that's good. Nothing wrong with that. She's in excellent physical condition, and she enjoys it. She really enjoys getting out and uh, walking or running every morning. Got a little thing on her wrist telling her when she's going or 10 miles. And she don't skip it. No way in the world. So that's wonderful and great. Because she's, that's a race. You've got to get ready for it. That's a marathon. And that's the way the Christian life is. It's not a little quickie, uh, one thing and done and over with. Revelation chapter C, 3 said it this way. Be thou faithful until death. That's until you die. Jesus was watching the churches and he said, I know all about you and I'm watching you and I know your works. Be, that's Jesus talking, be thou faithful until death. You know the funny part about it, that could mean as you die naturally, but back in those days it might have meant until you're killed as a Christian. But whichever, be faithful all of your life until your life. Christianity is a lifelong struggle and battle. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's not a part-time thing. It's not a, a little occasionally now and then thing. It's a lifetime struggle. That's why it's so important every day to read your Bible. Every day to do a lot of praying. Every day to do something unselfish. For somebody else. The devil knows that time's on his side as far as Christians is concerned. If I just keep annoying at them long enough, uh, and eventually they'll get bored or forgetful or casual or distracted. And uh, doesn't it happen? Falling away is nearly always a slow, gradual process. We don't wake up one morning and say, I decided I'm not going to be a Christian today. That's not the way it happens. It's just something gnaws at us a little bit. We get a little careless. We get a little bit sleepy. And, you know, we get a little casual. And then it, it slips away. We can make it, but it takes conscious, careful effort. We're dealing with eternity. We're not dealing with some casual thing here. It's like climbing a mountain. You look at a mountain. I can't climb that. Of course you can. One step at a time, the way you climb it. I can walk to the moon. If I live long enough, if I had me a little path up that way, one step at a time, I can make it. You can do most anything if you're not trying to do it all at one time. Christians, let me tell you, Christians are made to be on top of the mountain. That's where God wants us. 
And that's something we strive and we'll do and we'll make it. Too often we forget that it's easy to slip away and forgot that we were once purged from our old sin. The majority, particularly the last half, the majority of the New Testament was written to Christians who were giving up, turning around, going back, growing cold. The great majority of it was written to that. That's a shame and a disgrace. Fallen Christians present a very sad picture, a very, very sad example. Don't, Christian, listen to me. Don't, don't let your epitaph be Christian for a while. Let it be Christian till he died. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, add to your faith, virtue, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He said, if these things be in you and abound, they'll make you that you are neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and was forgotten from his, that he was purged from his old sins. Do all you can, he goes on to say, to make your calling and election sure. Oh, Jesus called you out of this world, called you to be a Christian, called you to live a Christian life, and you answered it. You answered yes. Don't let your calling and election be made nothing. We got an election coming up in a couple of weeks, I think, don't we? And we all gonna vote. And maybe uh, the good Lord have his hand in who wins for the sake of our country. But let me tell you something. We are every one of us in an election for eternity. And Peter said, make your calling. Jesus has called you. And you answered yes. And election, sure. He called you out of this world. And you become a Christian. You are cleaned up. And you're living a Christian life. Hold on to it. Don't falter. So that the time of the election, God will say, I vote for him. Because he followed my son. Don't turn back. Of course, in closing, if you're not a Christian, then you're not even in the race. And what are you going to do when you face God in the judgment, having turned your back on His only begotten Son? That's going to be a kind of a bad day.
But Jesus invites us to get in the race. And Jesus encourages us to be faithful in that race until the death, whether it's a violent death on, for His name's sake or a natural death that we experience as a human being, whatever, faithful till you die. If you're not a Christian, we'd do anything we can to help you become a Christian. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and are willing to turn away from your sins and confess His name and be baptized and have your sins washed away, you can become a Christian today. I'm not telling you it's just a bed of roses. You're taking up a cross. And while it's not exactly the same that Jesus took up, it's a kind of cross that's sometimes kind of tough too. It's not a everything peaches and cream as a Christian, but oh, there's some awful good pluses. Amen. We'd love to help you become a Christian. If you want to confess faith as a Christian, rededicate yourself to the, the following Jesus Christ more closely. We'll pray for you. We'll help you in any way that we can according to the Word of God, if you'll respond to the invitation of Christ, as together we stand and say.